0: Well, hey, it's good to be back, and good to see y'all. You know, a couple weeks ago, um, I was with um, Amy at uh, Hobby Lobby. It was on a Monday, because that's what Christians do on Mondays. They celebrate that the weekend is over, and they eat at Chick-fil-A, and go shopping at Hobby Lobby, right? And so I was at Hobby Lobby, and I was uh, just on an aisle by myself, like, looking at candles, thinking of getting a candle for my office, because they had a great one there that I'd bought before that smelled just like coffee, and so I love to drink coffee, I love to smell coffee, so I was looking at these candles, but uh, they were all broken, uh, they had no odor at all. I was like, man, what a crazy, why would you even buy these candles if you can't smell them? And so I was showed one to Amy, what do you think about this? And she went, Ooh, oh, wow, that is so strong. And I was like, oh, she goes, do you like that? And I said, well, uh, I can't smell that. Like, I thought the candles were all broken. Turns out that uh, I was broken, and so uh, had COVID, and so have gone uh, through that. I know a number of you have had it as well. And so uh, just want you to know it's so good to be on this side of it and uh, to be back uh, together. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, before all of this started, January, first sermon of the year, 2020, I preached on a passage from the... Uh, book of Psalms that uh, kind of preparing for at the time, I just thought the election to kind of get our minds correct in our way of thinking. Uh, I looked at a passage that says some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And so some trust in Washington, Like some trust in presidents and elections, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Can I just tell you, this side of COVID for me, some trust in the CDC and some trust in vaccines and some trust in masks. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I've been vaccinated, but I got to tell you, my hope and my trust is not in a vaccine my hope and my trust is in the name of the Lord, our God. And so guys, whether, whether I live 30 more years or three more weeks, like I'm going to be okay because I know guys, I know that my redeemer lives. And in the end, he will take his stand upon the earth and I will see him. I and not another. I will see him with my own eyes. And so that is our trust. And so I want to Pray uh, for us as we get started and as we open up the word to the gospel of Mark. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this morning as, uh, as we prepare to open your word and look into it, God, that we would anchor our hope in who you are and in what you have done and what you have said, not in uh, the narrative of the culture around us that we would trust in you. Lord, we do ask for your healing for those within our community and especially those within our church and other churches in this community who are struggling with COVID right now. God, I ask that you would heal them. You preserve life and uh, God, increase their, uh, their ministry and their opportunities to point to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, this week you completed, if you're following along with us, you completed your reading in the Gospel of Mark. And I don't know about you as we've gone through this unfolding grace. To me, it was refreshing to be able to read one whole book. You know, 16 chapters, not to jump from here and there, but to just see the whole of the gospel of Mark, that was a lot of fun for me. But it also made it difficult for today's sermon because it was really hard narrowing down uh, what my focus needed to be because there's just so much happening. In the gospel of Mark, it's the culmination of everything that it's been building up to in unfolding grace and in the uh, Old Testament. And so I decided instead of just picking one passage, I want to follow some themes, actually five themes uh, through the gospel of Mark. And the first of these themes is one that everyone notices. Like everyone will mention this one because it just leaps off the page. And it's the repeated theme of action, action. Scholars note that Mark's gospel is written with an economy of style, which means there's no wasted words. It's short and to the point without any surplus information. Like it is a gospel of action. Everything is happening really, really fast, which you kind of should expect, right? Like if you were an Israelite living in the first century and you have been waiting as a people for thousands of years for the Messiah to come and suddenly here he is. Like you would expect things to happen really, really quickly. The Lord, as we told, we're told in Malachi, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly, like all at once, come to his temple Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. And then there's 400 years of silence. But when Jesus arrives, everything is happening all at once. Like you see this in the repeated use of the word immediately, like the Greek word translated immediately or at once appears a total of 41 times in the gospel of Mark. Now, it appears only 59 times in the entire Bible, so 70% of the times this Greek word is used, it's in Mark's Gospel. Like, things are happening. This is the Gospel of action. Another prominent theme in the Gospel of Mark is the repeated response of awe or amazement on, on the part of those who witness the ministry of Jesus. Like we read this, like in chapter 1, we read that the crowds were astonished at his teaching and amazed by his authority. As a result, Mark records that his fame spread everywhere. And then we get to chapter 2 and it says that they were amazed by his power and then they declare with one voice, like we've never seen anything like this. In chapter 4, Jesus calms the troubled sea for His disciples, and they had been terrified of the waves, but now it says that they are filled with a great fear, the sense of awe. The waves were scary, but we are in the boat with somebody who calmed the sea. In chapter 5, upon hearing the story of a demon-possessed man who had been delivered, it says that everyone marveled. And then later in that same chapter, when Jesus raises a little girl from the dead, it says that they were immediately overcome with amazement. You get to chapter seven and it says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Chapter 9 says that they were greatly amazed, and chapter 10 says that they were exceedingly astonished. Chapter 11 says for a second time that the crowd was astonished at His teaching, and chapter 12 says that they all marveled at Him. And even in chapter 15, it notes that Pilate, the one who condemned Him, was amazed by Jesus. Are you like, church, are you amazed by Jesus? Like, are you, are you still, do you still find yourself amazed by what you read in the Gospels? Amazed by the person, the character, the life, the work, the love, the sacrifice, the resurrection. Are you amazed by Jesus? Like, it's been said that um, familiarity breeds contempt, but, but I think that most of the time, it really just breathes indifference, right? Been there, done that. It's old hat. I've seen it all. It's like the person who was reading through the Bible at my last church at Hill Country, Pflugerville, who when she read through her Bible, had noticed that she had highlighted things the last time she read her Bible. And her response was, I've already read this. What's the deal? And I'm like, okay, I don't think you get it. Like if you're not amazed by Jesus, guys, you have a you have a problem. Right? It, it's kind of like, it's kind of like I have often thought how cool it would be to live someplace that was just stunningly beautiful. You know? Like when I moved here to Texas 27 years ago, people told me, they were like, oh, you're moving to Austin? Oh man, Austin is so beautiful. And then I got here and I was like, Have y'all been anywhere else? (laughs) Like like I'm from Georgia. North Georgia is beautiful, right? Going to the coast, the ocean, it's just amazing. Going to Colorado, going to places like that. Like I've imagined, how cool would it be to live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? I visited there a couple summers ago and it just kind of took my breath away. Could you imagine waking up every morning to that all inspiring like scenery, Like it would just be incredible. But I I bet there are people who were born and raised there who wake up every morning and they've lived in this place their whole life and they look out the window and they're unimpressed. Like they're indifferent to the beauty of the Grand Tetons. Those amazing animals, those forests, everything that is there. You see, in the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves in very familiar territory you know all of these stories. You've heard sermons on most of these stories. If you grew up in church, you've heard stories with flannel graph of most of these stories. You've seen some of the movies about Jesus about these stories. And so it would be so easy for you to be like the guy born and raised in Jackson Hole who has no sense of amazement. He doesn't look out the window in the morning and shout, wow, Like we could be just like that. We too could read these stories and somehow not be amazed. And you need to understand if that's the case, the problem is with you. Guys, it's like me at Hobby Lobby not being able to smell candles. The candles weren't broken. I was. And if you read the gospels and are not just blown away by this person Jesus Christ, you're broken. The problem is not with the Scripture. It's not with the person of Christ. Even Albert Einstein, when he read the New Testament, said that I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Are you? Are you amazed by Jesus? Another significant theme in the Gospel of Mark is that of authority. Authority which you would expect this one, right? Because it is a central theme throughout the entire Bible. Everything that we've read in Unfolding Grace is always pointing to the fact that God is not a authority. He is the authority. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the universe. He has all dominion. There is no place in all of creation that is outside of the sovereign rule of God. Like, I want you to understand, like, even in hell, like, Satan is not the Lord of hell, right? Satan is a cockroach, and one day our Savior will crush him under his foot. Jesus is the Lord of heaven, of earth, and of hell. And that is a theme throughout the scripture that God is the king, He is the authority. And another theme that throughout the scripture is our own animosity to this authority, right? Like you see it from the very beginning, like you see it in the garden in Eden when Adam and Eve are given this perfect, like idyllic environment, they have a perfect relationship with one another, a perfect relationship with God, with creation, with everything. And they're given one rule. And their mindset is, huh, I think I can decide for myself what's right and wrong. I'm going to choose for myself what's right and wrong. And so they take the fruit. And as a result, they plunge us all into a curse. Fast forward just a few years, you have Cain and Abel bringing an offering before the Lord and Cain is resentful of his brother's offering being accepted because his thought is, I can worship God on my own terms. And so he kills his brother. And from that story, you can make a straight line to the cause of the flood and the destruction of mankind. Like... And then you have the Tower of Babel where the people gather together and basically say, I'm going to reach God on my own. Like that's the story of mankind. The story of humanity is the story of rebellion. And Scripture says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. What does that mean? Well, What is witchcraft? Witchcraft is you trying to, with your own power and ability and incantations and like things you do and tricks of the trade, you're trying to take hold of like the supernatural and eternal realities. And rebellion is basically saying, I'm going to approach the supernatural, the eternal God on my own terms. And so you have that theme of authority. And directly related to it is this theme of animosity, a rebellion against God. Every one of us, according to Romans chapter five, was born an enemy of God and a rebellion against God's law. Like you read in the Bible, as we did, as soon as they get the 10 commandments from God, before they're even copied, they've already broken them. And then you see a rebellion of all human authority You know, in the Bible, we read that Moses was the most humble man in all the earth, like he served the nation of Israel to the point that often he would put himself on the line and say, God, cut me off from your promise, but preserve the nation of Israel. And yet the nation of Israel's response was, does God only talk to Moses? Can he talk to us? Like, is he the only guy who's in charge? Can't we be in charge? And then, of course, we have in our day and age a latest flavor of rebellion, which is the rebellion against nature itself. A man can be a woman and a woman can be a man like that's guys. That's where our culture has gotten us. And you need to understand that salvation at its core is a restoration of all things. That God in salvation is restoring the proper order of things where He is sovereign Lord and ruler. There is no salvation without bowing to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The idea that there's salvation and then there's this Lordship salvation, it's foreign to Scripture. Like the the term Lordship salvation, which was a popular term 20-something years ago among theologians... Really, all you're saying is salvation, salvation. Because to receive Christ is to receive Him as the Savior and the King and the Lord of your life because we are saved from sin, from death, from wrath, and ultimately saved from ourselves. So action, amazement, authority, and animosity. And now let's see, opening uh, Mark's Gospel to chapter 1, how these themes kind of play out in the Gospel of Mark. It says in verse 21 of chapter 1, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. That word authority means the power, the strength, the ability, and the right To do whatever you want to do. That's what authority looks like in Scripture. The word authority literally means out of the original stuff. Like it's from the same root word as the word author. And so one scholar concludes that Jesus taught about life with original rather than the derived authority. He was explaining the story of their lives as the author of their lives. And guys, they took notice when the crowds heard Jesus teach, they thought, this is different. Like we haven't heard anybody teach like this. He's not quoting other scribes and earlier rabbis. Like he is just opening up the word of God and speaking as if he's the author of the word of God. He's talking about our lives as if he's the author of our lives. Verse uh, 23, it says, and immediately... "...so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him, and at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee." And so you have in chapter 1 the proper response to the authority of Christ, but in chapter 2 you get a glimpse of the improper response to the authority of Christ. In verse 5, the context is, God's just been lowered through the roof, who's paralyzed for a healing by Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Which is kind of odd, right? Like He didn't come there, He thought, to get His sins forgiven. He came there to be healed by Jesus. And Jesus, like dealt with the most serious issue first. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? This is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Basically, who does this guy think he is? Who gave him the authority? Like, who does he think he is to speak like this and to forgive sins? This man, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? Like, which one of these would be more difficult for me? Just to make a statement about his sin being forgiven, or actually to make somebody who is paralyzed walk again? And so the crowd is amazed, but the religious authorities were angered and they begin the plot to kill Jesus. And the gospel accounts make it clear that their main issue with Jesus was fueled by their jealousy of him. Like their thought was, Hey, you're not the authority. We're the authority. You're not the one who gets to speak with authority. That's us. Like, who do you think you are? Like John's gospel records that they even admit this when they say these words, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. Like Jesus is messing up our business here. Like we got to get rid of this guy. Like in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, they really show their hand when they come to Jesus and it says, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Who do you think you are? Who gave you permission to do this? Like, did you clear this with any of us? Have you talked to the high priest? Where did you go to seminary? Like, what do you think you're doing? Finally, all of this animosity, all of this rebellion builds up to the point and reaches its climax at the unlawful trial of Jesus in Mark 14 that you read this week, that they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief elders and priests and the scribes came together. Like Jesus is taken in the cover of night to a trial and all the religious leaders are there and the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. He's already guilty. We just need to find a way so that when we say he's guilty, it's okay with everybody. People get it. So they're seeking evidence to put him to death and they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer, just like Isaiah 53, 700 years earlier, had promised that he would. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Who do you think you are? Do you honestly Expect us to believe that you are the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God, the son of David. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, guys, as you read through your New Testament, the synoptic gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark and Luke are synonymous. They tell the same story, often in the same order And in these gospel accounts, there are two climactic confessions of Jesus. One in chapter eight of Mark's gospel made by Peter in Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and the other one made right here before the high priest like the one person in all of Israel who should have recognized Jesus for who He was and when He said these words should have said, Amen, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Guys, understand this is both a confession and a dreadful warning. You see, King Jesus here is alluding to three different Old Testament passages that speak about the coming of the Messiah as the judge. And here he is before these judges reminding him that he is ultimately the judge of all the earth. Isaiah 52 verse 8, one of these passages says that every eye will see Yahweh when he returns to Zion. Psalm 110 verse 1 also alluded to by Jesus here says that Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. And then the ultimate passage he's quoting here is Daniel chapter 7, which records the vision of Daniel where he says, in my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like the Son of Man. When Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man, this is the passage that He's talking about. In my vision, I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, And sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming (laughs) And seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven, Jesus is saying, you're judging me? Oh, no. Oh, no. I will judge you. Like These are the only words that we ever have recorded that Jesus ever spoke to the high priest of Israel, an enemy saying, today I stand before you. But believe me when I say a day is coming when you will stand before me. Can you imagine that day? That day when Caiaphas, the high priest, is brought before that great white throne of judgment, that throne that it says everyone in earth and under the earth flee from and he is brought in to the throne room of God before the throne of God with his eyes cast down. And then as He begins to look up, the first thing He sees are the feet of Him who is seated upon the throne. And they have nail prints in them. Can you imagine that day? That dreadful day that Jesus promises here. Like We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Satan himself one day will bow his knee and through gritted teeth say Jesus Christ is Lord. Caiaphas and Annas and Pilate one day will confess through gritted teeth that Jesus Christ is Lord. How will you respond to the authority of Jesus Christ? Will you respond with resentment and animosity or with awe and surrender? Because the reality is you can either bow to Him and confess that He is Lord now or wait until later. But make no mistake, you will bow. So as we prepare our hearts uh, for communion, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And you know, because you've read it this week, the story, as it progresses, you have Jesus condemned by the high priest, by the council, by Pilate, the crowd shouts out in anger and animosity, crucify him. And he is nailed to that cross. It says that the, the world was in darkness for a few hours symbolizing the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. And then he's buried in a borrowed tomb. And in Mark 16, it says that when the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun was risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And when I was reading this this week, I thought that there are really three resurrections in this passage one is proclaimed one is provided and one is promised the one that's proclaimed is that Jesus Christ is risen he was completely dead when they laid him in the tomb and he was completely and fully alive three days later when he burst forth from the grave but the other one is provided I love what it says here Remember, this is Peter's gospel as he tells Mark what had happened. Mark writes it down, but it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. But why? Like, why did this angel spell out the fact that you need to tell the disciples, but especially tell Peter? Was it because of Peter's significance as a leader? as the preacher at Pentecost, as the first pope, as the Catholics believe? No. It was because of the significance of Peter's failure. Everyone will fall away, but I will never fall away. Everyone will deny you, but I never will. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so when you're restored, strengthen the brothers see the accuser would say to Peter there is no coming back from that mistake but there's another theme in the gospel of Mark another theme a thread through all of Scripture and it is the theme of atonement on the cross Jesus looked all the way into the future and all the way into the past and he took all the sin of Peter upon himself and died as his substitute so that Peter could not be condemned for what he had done because there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We made a mess but God made a way. And then there's one final resurrection in this passage it's one that's promised for us Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live because I live you will live also jesus told his fearful disciples in john chapter 4 when they are hearing about his departure and they don't know what to think of it he tells them you can have confidence that you will live forever because i will come back from the grave you know this past week as a church we lost a dear brother in christ ron leatherman Ron went home to be with the Lord and we miss him, but we haven't lost him because you don't lose something when you know where it is. Ron would tell me when I would meet with him and his daughter wrote this on her Facebook page because he said it to her and he said it to everybody. My best friend is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's with him. Like we had so many fun breakfasts and crazy conversations about every topic in the world. And now Ron has all the answers because he's with Jesus. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And even if you die, yet will you live. And so guys, we come to this table, the table of communion. And the scripture tells us that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. But can I just tell you, there would be no table of communion celebrated if Jesus was still dead. Because He lives, because He defeated death, because He defeated sin, we come to this table to celebrate. And so as the band plays this first song, I want you to come and take the elements Take them back to your seat and prepare your heart, and we'll take them together after this song. Let's stand. I was just thinking. Um, read a couple books um, over the last couple weeks uh, about how to deal with uh, cancel culture today and everything that's going on in our world, and it just hit me that uh, I can never be canceled because Jesus was canceled for me and for you. Like in the book of Revelation, we're told that in the last days, people will flee to caves and cry out to the mountains to fall on them and crush them to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. And yet I don't have to fear that because the mountain of God's wrath fell on Jesus for me and for you. That's a message worth sharing. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you spotless before his glorious presence with great joy to the only wise God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory and honor and authority and dominion both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you, church.